Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Optive Theology Podcast. This is a podcast where John Stegatowski, Nick Gibson, and me, Andy Schmidt, discuss some of the hard theological and cultural topics in the Bible, bringing three different perspectives from three different generations. Today, we're doing part three of What is Hell? Um, and we have Tom and Nick with us. So, Tom, thanks for coming on. John isn't with us, but we're going to open up with a prayer. So, Tom, if you want to pray for us. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We tremble at your word. And Lord, you said to be diligent to preserve the spirit of unity. So Lord, we honor each other. And uh, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would um, guide us and help us. And Lord, where we can't agree, I pray that you would grant um, that spirit of unity. That, that transcends us having to be uniform on every little thing. Lord, we love you, and we trust you to be with us during this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, cool. So just before we get started, we do this every time, but do you just want to tell Tom, you want to tell him who you are again? Because you're not regular. Uh, Tom Flaherty, uh, pastor at City Church. That's it. Um, author of raising hell uh, i have written a book called raising hell a closer look at the church's darkest doctrine right and that's what we're talking about so um before we get started with any of the questions because people send in questions and people have questions about us um about the last two uh if you guys both want to give like a, a a brief summary of what exactly you believe so tom on conditional immortality that's the first time I've gotten that right. If you want to tell everybody what, like kind of a brief summary of what exactly that is. Sure. I don't believe we are created eternal beings. I believe that came from Greek philosophy and got picked up by the, the, the early church and became the majority opinion. Um, I think that it makes more of man than man is. Man is a temporal, transient being. And the gospel offers immortality. It offers eternal life. God alone is immortal. And Paul says that the gospel brings to light immortality. And unless God gives you eternal life, you will eventually perish. And, um, but not before um, that Jesus will give an eternal punishment of um both conscious torment and hell for sins that were done against humanity. And then the sin against rejecting Christ, rejecting God's offer is that you will eventually perish, be destroyed, be consumed, be eaten up by hell's fire. Okay. Nick, you want to give the traditionalist or you call it the orthodoxy, whatever viewpoint. Yeah, it, within the theological literature, it's simply referred to usually as as a, um, eternal conscious torment or everlasting conscious torment, which is that the duration. So it's it's similar to Tom's view of punishment. It just its duration is permanent, rather than temporal. Um. Yeah. So uh, so eternal conscious torment is the is often referred to as the traditional view because it is the traditional view. It goes back to the earliest moments of the church. It's the teaching of the New Testament, in my opinion. It's the teaching of the earliest church fathers. 
it is not from Greek philosophy, though in some ways the philosophy was consummate with Greek philosophy, which is why it's found in some of the Greek fathers and their apologetic literature. We can get into that if you want. It's not from the Essenes. There's no evidence of that. The Josephus quotes are, don't say that. We can get into that if you want. Basically, everything that Tom said last time affirming that, I disagree with every single point of it. So we'll just have to get into whatever we can. Um, but I think it would be also to get into is one of the things we talked about in both podcasts was of what significance is the disagreement. And I think that um, one of the things that Tom's quote is a dictum. I can't remember if it was first said by Tertullian, but it's sometimes ascribed to Augustine, which is in essentials, unity in non-essentials, liberty and in all things charity. But one of the difficulties is that that statement isn't in the scriptures themselves. And we live in a time where most people would put everything in non-essentials. Um, and for example, one of the biggest examples of that is sexuality right now. Most people just assume sexuality, that must be in the non-essentials, whatever that is. And yet nowhere in the New Testament does that seem to be the case. And in a couple of places, your belief on sexuality seems to determine whether or not your theology is salvific, right? Which, which is just seems unheard of to a person today, but it's, that's what the New Testament teaches. So of what consequence this is, I think is also a significant question as well. Maybe we can get to that. So, but wherever you want to take this, but yeah, I hold, I hold the uh, traditional view, but I also would consider the Orthodox view in that it was believed quote, always everywhere and by all. Um, that is that it was by far believed throughout the early church up until the present. Yep. You want to respond to that or do you want to say anything to that? Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, the first three centuries, there was not a definitive position on the nature of hell's punishment. Um, both um, Ignatius and Justin Martyr have quotes that are very lean towards annihilationism. Arnobulus, who is also an early apologist, was clearly a, a conditional immortality and believed in annihilation. Um, so it did not, the, the church did not make a clear statement on, until Augustine. And that was to counter origin. Um, origin was well before him, but that was, that was when it became doctrine. Um, I absolutely do not believe it was the teaching of the New Testament. And so the idea that this was just the, the first three centuries, they focused on the death and resurrection and it was about the hope of eternal life. And, um, there was little, little emphasis on exactly what hell's punishment was. Okay. So I'm just going to get started with, with a question that I had written down for Nick right out the gate. Um, and so we're going to go back to Genesis three. So I'm going to say, so Tom says that in part, in part two, the podcast you know the one that tom's in he says that in genesis 3 eve tells the serpent that if she eats from the tree of knowledge of good and evil um that she will die because that's what god told her okay so um nick you said that this is a physical death correct that that it would be a physical death where she would die immediately yeah, historically, most of the church fathers and theologians in the Orthodox tradition have said that that's that was the cause of the introduction of death into the world. Yes, that obviously that's ex extremely complicated view, but that if you want just a one sentence, that's the one sentence answer. 
So, so Tom, you said that this is basically this is a spiritual death because after they ate from the tree of of the knowledge of good and evil, that they didn't physically die, right? So you were saying more of a spiritual. You said the day you eat of it, you will die. Okay. Yeah. And they didn't die physically that day. So okay. in what way did they die? Right. So in Genesis two seventeen it says, "But of the tree of no- uh, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall." Uh, not eat for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die so nick i'm asking you what exactly was this verse talking about then just to be more specific on i know you just kind of said a little bit of what you think but what do you actually think yeah so first i want to clarify that this still mitigates against annihilationist position because there has to be some kind of death if it's a quote spiritual death you have to find what do you mean by that because if you if it's not a physical death right but it is a spiritual death then what kind of spiritual death? Wait, I thought we weren't everlasting creatures. I thought, like, what is the nature? One of the things that annihilation is, has historically struggled with is the definition of the soul's enduring capabilities. If it's a spiritual entity, right, why and when does it end, right? And in what sense does it live and die as a spirit, right? Generally speaking, there has only been two views. There isn't a spirit that what we call the spirit is some kind of human psychology and it dies when the brain goes dead, right? Or there's an enduring force that exists within human beings which is what the pharisees thought it's what the essenes thought it's what the fathers thought all of, like not it, it didn't come from the greeks lots of people all over the world believed in the eternality of the human soul that after you died it descended into the netherworld whether you were good or evil that was that was most religions of the world have always believed that so um i think what it meant was that humans were not created to die originally that adam and eve it looks like to me would have lived either everlastingly or a very long time more than the thousand years they did one of the things you see in the early chapters of genesis is the lifespan of human beings decreases rapidly after the entrance of the fall people live shorter and shorter periods of time from a thousand years down to about 120 years becomes a good long life full of years is the biblical language abraham is considered exceedingly old dying at 140 so in that sense to go from living more than a thousand years to living you know well life expectancy got down to about 30 years old um but the, the the answer is, is just like being made in the image of God isn't entirely worked out and fully explained. Neither is that death other than that the curse enters in and people start killing each other and people start dying. That is the immediate evidence of what's explained in the book of Genesis itself on the basis of the Bible's, Bible's actual text, which is why I would, uh, I would move in that direction in my interpretation. But I don't, ex- I don't, one of the things that's different with my view, one of the things I liked about Tom's view, but I also didn't like is that it ties up in a bow really nicely. It takes in everything with no remainder. And that's really attractive. I don't think the Old Testament doctrine of some of this stuff is that clean. I think it's dark and we learn more as we go forward. But I don't think you can always go backward and like and tie everything in without remainder. I think that there's darkness and there's assumptions that turn out not to be true as you move forward in the Bible. That's why by the time Jesus came, there were four or five different Jewish views of the afterlife and the netherworld and what happened after you died and what a soul was and all of that. There wasn't one view among the Jews. There were numerous views. So last time I agreed with that you that, that that to make a doctrine out of the Old Testament and one incident um, would be reckless. But oftentimes the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed and that which is it foreshadows a clear New Testament truth. And I would say that the tree of life foreshadows the cross, the tree of life that you have to eat from to get eternal life. 
And without that life, you are going to perish. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I'm. I want to clarify with Nick that it's. It says that for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Are you, so? What you're saying is that that doesn't. What it means is that just sin has entered the earth. Now, like you're going, you're going to die like faster or quicker. Or what, what exactly did you? I I didn't fully understand what you all just said. Okay, so I. Um, I'm trying to represent the orthodox, like the orthodox or traditional tradition here. And historically, what's been believed is that death did not enter. Right? Usually, um, Romans five is quoted here that death entered the world because of sin. Right? That in Adam all died, and then in Christ all are made alive. Of course, that's conditional in Romans if you read the book as a whole. Right? That's why we're not universalists. Right? But the argument in Romans five is is that we all become partakers of death in Adam. The the historically Christian theologians have believed that Adam was not made to physically die, right? Now, whether or not that was because he would naturally live for 5,000 years and once God had given him the knowledge of good and evil by teaching and leading and discipling him rather than taking it from the tree, then he would have been given permission to eat from the tree of life. Or maybe he was already eating from the tree of life and you needed to keep... We don't don't actually know how any things actually work. They're not explained in the book of Genesis. Um, Whether we take them metaphorically or typologically or symbolically... I mean, there's a lot of argument that can happen there, but there is no evidence in the scriptures themselves that we are supposed to interpret the tree of life as pre-shadowing the tree of the cross. It's poetic. It works functionally. You can make a logic for it. But the only parallel that I know of in scripture to the tree of life is actually the tree in the city of God in Revelation 20 and 21, where there is this, there's a tree and a river and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations and it bears fruit every month for the people of God that are in the city of God. So there's, there's a tree of life in the final city. So, so paradise where we exist with God in a perfect relationship with him has in it a tree of life. Now, if Tom wants to relate that to the cross, that, that, that preaches whether or not the Bible is telling us to see the cross as a fulfilled typology of the tree of life. I've seen no evidence for that in scripture. Does that make sense? And there's a difference. So I'm not saying he's wrong to say that. I'm just saying, if we're if we're trying to exegete the Bible, trying to figure out what the Bible is saying and how it foreshadows prophetically, I don't I don't see a connection. Well, I, I, w- I would say this in Genesis three twenty two, um, when they the angels put are, are guarding the garden with with flaming swords. The reason they give is so that they will not eat of the tree of life and live forever. So it is the tree of eternal life. That tree does give eternal life, and so. I I don't think it's that big of a stretch to say that it, it it's a foreshadow of the eternal life God is now offering in Christ. And of course that is through the cross. I mean I could, but there's so many times. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well that was my first question for, for Nick. So I think I think that we'll kind of leave that one there. But Tom, I do have a question um for you that I don't I don't feel like you necessarily answered in our last podcast. So um, in Matthew twenty five forty six, we talked about this the entire, for a lot of it. And it, so it says, um, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And so I did, may, maybe you did, and I listened through it again, but can you give an explanation for that verse where, because we, we talked about how in my podcast with Nick, after Nick brought that up, I was like, well, I guess we don't need any 
And I guess that's it. We're done right. because it says that you're going to be, uh, you know, eternal punishment. And so can you give your your exact explanation for that verse and, and what that actually means when talking about eternal punishment there? So eternal punishment is simply an irreversible punishment. It It doesn't necessarily mean eternal punishings that you're going to be punished again and again and again. And I want to, I just want to read this passage from uh, Basil Atkinson, who is a, a philologist. And uh, here, here's what he says about it. When the adjective Ionius, which is, is the Greek word for eternal, um, is used in Greek with nouns of action. It has reference to the result of that action, but not the process. Thus, the phrase eternal punishment is comparable to eternal redemption and eternal salvation, both scriptural phrases. The lost will not be passing through a process of punishment forever, but will be punished once and for all with eternal results, i.e. eternal salvation does not mean we're going to be saved again and again and again and again. We are saved once, and then it has effects that are going to last for all eternity. Eternal redemption doesn't mean we're going to be redeemed again and again. It means there are effects of that redemption that now last forever. So it is with eternal punishment. It's, it's, it is a punishment. It's not ongoing punishments, but the effects of that punishment last forever. Okay, so the effects of okay that makes that makes sense. I didn't feel like it was answered. So you're saying the so in uh, what is it called conditional immortality. immortality? You are sent to hell. You're punished for X amount of time, and then the what lasts of that punishment because after you're annihilated is that you're forever then annihilated. That's the there's last no thing. universalism. It's eternal. Yeah, sure. It is irreversible. Okay, so Nick, do you want to respond to that? So I think first of all, Tom in his, in the podcast, I think we have both done this. Has said um, encourage people to like research some of this stuff for themselves, right? If you go into the literature on this view, conditional immortality refers to a view that believes that if you do not believe in God, in the ways in which we're called to, uh, upon your death you cease to exist. Um, and immortality is a given to people who believe. So when, when Tom calls his view conditional immortality, that doesn't follow with the normal flow of theological literature on this. Now, that doesn't mean like he can't use the phrase. I mean, nobody owns English phrases. And I think the reason Tom uses that phrase is because he's, he wants to emphasize in what he's teaching the, that he believes it's an incredible grace of God that he's offering immortality to people if they'll believe in his Christ. So conditional immortality is a positive way to talk about that rather than annihilationism. That sounds maybe sounds negative, right? Tom's view in the theological literature is a form of annihilationism. Just to be clear, if you go and read about this, Tom's view is, is within what's called the annihilationist camp, not the conditional immortality camp, how those words have been used by scholars, right? That, I'm not saying Tom can't use it. I just want to be clear that if you go read about this in systematic theologies or wherever, that, that's just a thing. So I would just say to that, mm -hmm. um, certainly that's what like the Seventh-day Adventists are. They, it's, it's, you're just gone. Um, but John Stott used conditional immortality and John Stott absolutely believes in suffering and hell mm -hmm. and conscious torment. And so, um, 
I'm just saying if people go to a systematic theology and they go to the eschatology section and they read this section, conditional immortality is used for the immortality. Because part of, part of the issue is that you don't believe you don't believe that post physical spiritual existence is impossible. Oh. You believe it is. It, it, we absolutely are alive after we die. The right. scriptures could not be more clear. Right. Than that. Right. And so there is a experience beyond mortality that everybody will experience. Correct. You just don't think it's everlasting. Right. Right. Does that make sense? Yep. So in that sense, if, if we believe sort of literally in the idea of conditional immortality, the, the extra more, maybe you could call it conditional extra mortality, but the, 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 existing beyond basic human morality, the grass of the field withers and dies. We just physically, we die, right? You believe we exist beyond that. You just believe that that can be ended by God. And I, he does I just end believe it. the soul is also mortal, not just the body, that mm-hmm. the soul itself is mortal. And this was the argument that they had in 1995 at the evangelical council in England. Yeah. And this was, this was the, the two different positions. Yeah. Okay. So let me, let me get the, the Matthew 25 thing. Okay. So I am sure that Basil Atkinson is a very able scholar. Okay. Um, first of all, there is no such thing as quote Greek, right? There are multiple sub languages in Greek and whether like that may be true in Attic Greek, it's impossible, which is like Aristotle, Plato, Greek. It's impossible to verify what Atkinson says in any of the texts of the Bible itself. The gospel writers only use the word alias. The only way they use it is in relationship to, to quote, eternal punishment or eternal salvation. It's used in no other context in any of the Gospels and Acts. If you look at all 69 references of the word in the entire New Testament, you cannot find a single unambiguous reference in which what Basil Atkinson says is clearly true. The reason that is, is because in the etymology of the word aeonios, it takes its finality from its duration. Finality is a secondary property of the primary meaning of everlasting. So for example, if I tell my wife, I will love you forever, right? Because I've declared my love for my wife will never end, right? Therefore, my declaration is final because no other situation can possibly occur other than my love because it's eternal. Because I've declared that it's everlasting, it is therefore secondarily final. It doesn't work the other way. Because something is final, it doesn't make it everlasting. There is a Greek word for final. It's eschatos, where we get the word eschatology, last things. It's found in the Gospels just a couple of times. It's usually found in a place um, where it says, you know, the guy had one demon. That demon left him. He didn't, like, return to God. And so he went and got his buddies, and, like, seven demons came. And his eschatos, his last state, was worse than his first, right? Jesus easily, I mean, Jesus easily could have said that in the parable. There's a word for finality. It's just never used in relationship to eternal life and damnation. The reason is because that's not what he means. The Greek word aeonios means everlasting. And it, when it's used in relationship to life for salvation or death and punishment, it means everlasting. And because it's everlasting, it's final. It's not the other way around. And Atkinson's claim cannot be, like, maybe it's true. Who knows? And maybe it's true in Attic Greek. But I went to verify this as somebody who's taken three years of Greek, including advanced Greek grammar. And I could not find a single occurrence of this word being used in the Bible in which you could verify it meant that and not the other thing. Now, you can assume that. You can just decide in your mind that anonios means final. And then every verse you look at will confirm it because you're like, well, oh, that means final. Oh, that means final. But this is part of the problem when, you know, when, when Tom says there isn't, a, there isn't a clear teaching in the fathers about this. The reason why there's not a, quote, clear teaching in the fathers about this is because the fathers just use the New Testament language everywhere. So they just said the worm will not die and the fire will not go out. 
they will go to eternal punishment. So if Tom looks at the fathers and he already believes Aeonios means final and the fathers use all this biblical language and every time he sees that biblical language, he sees that the fathers said meant that it was just final and that's compatible with annihilationism. Well, then there's no clear doctrine in the fathers, right? The problem is, is that the fathers all believed <laughs> that it meant everlasting and because it means everlasting, it always means also final. The, the early the early church fathers after the apostles those are those yeah. are the ones that interpreted scripture and set what we would call orthodoxy mm-hmm. yeah and and the reason why they matter is because when like um tom was talking about councils there isn't really a council the first council until 325 at nicaea there's some gatherings there's some synods but there isn't like a council until 325 and in a lot of cases before 310 the edict of toleration a lot of the fathers were killed and a lot of their writings were destroyed so we don't have a lot of writing for what are called the early patristic the the anti or the yeah the anti-nicene fathers as the fathers come before nicaea at 325 so when you read through them you have like there's just not that much literature there's not that many fathers but in where they talk about damnation and salvation they tend to use exactly the language of the new testament so when Tom and I go to confirm our views, right, they confirm our views because they just use the biblical language. So whatever the biblical language, whatever the Bible says is what the fathers are saying because they're literally using the exact same words. Koine Greek, you come to what it means oftentimes by the way it's used. That there isn't, there isn't a dictionary that says this is what it means. There were very few words and they were used in many different ways. And so, yeah, the syntax was much less complicated. So, re- so, so, so what, what Basil Atkinson s- simply brings out is both terms, eternal salvation and eternal redemption are in the new Testament and they don't mean again and again and again, they mean this happens once and it's effects last forever. Right. And what I'm saying is that Atkinson can say that, but it's completely unverifiable from a philological perspective. There is no occurrence of the word that unambiguously means that. And there are many occurrences of it, of it you know, where it means everlasting and not final. I mean, I could come up with it one in a couple of minutes, but like there's lot, I mean, there's 69 occurrences in the New Testament in every single one of them, except there's a couple of times where it means something else. One is um, just a long period of time, like in Philemon, it says, um, Onesimus is coming back to you, Aeonios. So you get him back for good is usually how it's translated in the New Testament. There are a couple verses like that where it's used a little bit strangely like that. But in every other case, it means everlasting, or at least it's, it doesn't mean unambiguously final. The claim Atkinson makes that with action nouns, it means something different. You can't verify it, right? In, in order to make, it's fine to make a theological claim if you're a scholar, but you've got to back it up. Like, I've got to be able to go to the Bible and see it. Like, I can read Greek. I know Bro. Greek. It's just logic. We're not going to be redeemed again and again and again. Eternal redemption means we're going to be redeemed once and it's going to last forever. I don't right. need somebody to interpret that for me. Right. But see what you're, see, here's, here's the issue is what I'm arguing is in the semantical range of this word, basically the vast majority of cases of the New Testament, the word carries both meanings because finality is implied by eternality or ever, the everlasting nature. Well, you're saying it can carry one meaning without the other. And I just think that's false. Now, if your argument of Apollumi is right, that it means final destruction and things cease to exist, like chaff going into fire, if that's correct, and then you read that interpretation into Aeonios, and that's correct, then maybe you could argue that. But you're not arguing that from the 
philology of Aeonios. You're trying to argue it from multiple definitions and different metaphors throughout the New Testament, which is fine. I think those are all incorrect also, but I think, but that's what you did like in your podcast. You well, said, let's talk about Apollo. You, you said like, wait on, but one thing you said, you said, let's wait on Matthew 25 and let's look at all these other verses. And you went through and you made kind of a tour de force of that stuff. And then you jumped to this verse and you're like, see, and it can be this thing and, and dismount. And what my argument is, oh, no, 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 no. Because even though this is one verse, the parallelism is very direct. The word is unambiguously punishment. It doesn't mean anything else. It has a very narrow semantical range. And it means everlasting. And so that verse is couldn't be more unambiguously clear in Jesus' teaching that in the end, the sheep will go to eternal life, which is both everlasting and final. And the goats will go to everlasting punishment, which is both everlasting and final. And that verse, and that verse doesn't come in an ambiguous phrase. It's not a, it's not a mythological passage. There's nothing that makes it ambiguous at all. It comes at the end of a long parable with a very specific meaning. He argues all the way through, and it is the summary statement of the entire parable. It, I don't know how the verse could be more unambiguous. Now, I grant you, it is, the, it is one of only two statements that prove what you're saying wrong. Like, what you're saying could be read into lots of passages. If you, if you look past certain things and, and you look at things in a certain way, there's this one and there's a passage in Revelation that says that the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. And it explicitly, unambiguously refers to the torment of sinners lasting forever and ever, right? So there's only two references in the New Testament that unambiguously say that annihilation is wrong. I think all the rest of them do as well. But if you read your view into those, then you can argue that they don't. But this one, I just don't think you can slide on. I think it's very clear what it says. Okay, Tom, go through, um, what was the other word that we were just going to talk about? Apollomy. Apollomy. So how did you get to where you got to in in reference to Matthew 25, 46 and in, in what you believe about that from the word Apollomy? Like, wh- can you can you take us through that? So apollome is another one of these Koine Greek words that's used many different ways. It's used 93 times in the New Testament, and it's used four different ways. And three times it's translated ruined, as in ruined for its original purpose, like the wineskins. Clearly not annihilated. It's still there, but it's 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 destroyed for or it's ruined for its original purpose. About a third of the time, it's it means to lose something. And obviously in that one, there's not annihilation, but it's also not ruined. It's something is lost. It's somewhere and it can be found again and brought back. Um, The other two thirds, it is translated destroy um, in an act of judgment, which I do believe is annihilation. And the other one is perish, which means something that's purpose is temporary and then goes out of existence. And Nick makes the argument that apollomy can never ever mean go out of existence. It cannot mean annihilate. It, it always means ruined for its original use. And, um, and I gave you three examples of scriptures that, and this is how you have to interpret. This is where you get to the meaning of Koine Greek words. You, there isn't a dictionary. You ha- I mean, there are dictionaries, but you, you, you have to figure them out because they're used in different ways. And, and the three passages that I gave you, one was in John 6, 
that Jesus says, don't work for food that perishes, but for the food that, that gives eternal life. Um, clearly putting something that has a, a temporary purpose versus something that's eternal. The second one was in Hebrews 1.11, where it says that the heavens will pass away, um, apollomy, but you remain the same, speaking of Jesus. Um, and then the third one in 2 Peter 2.6, where it says about blasphemers that they will perish like the beasts. And um, apollomy, uh, another time. And the idea that apollomy has to mean ruined for its original purpose, it never means annihilated. We talked about this last week. Yeah, I mean, you, you have to believe crazy stuff. You have to believe that beasts are like still alive, that their purpose wasn't fulfilled on earth and that they are now alive in another place. What, waiting for judgment? Um, no, it means it, it, it fulfilled God's purpose and it was a temporary purpose. It went out of existence. Now, what I said last week was, but if that is the only word we're using is apollomy, it's up, it's up for grabs. But there are two other words and that Jesus used, and one means burned up and one is consumed. And, and Peter and Jude give those as references of what's going to happen to the ungodly. And so what happens is if you start out believing the soul is eternal, then you end up, you have to believe it. Destroy doesn't mean destroy. Perish doesn't mean perish. Consumed doesn't mean consumed. And burned up doesn't mean burned up because I already believe I've I, just exactly what Nick is, is accusing me of reading into the text. Um, the same goes the other way. You, you read what you already believe. Okay. Nick, you probably want to respond to that. So, yeah. So, I mean, I, I guess we could go back to the tape of the first, the first thing, but I don't think I've ever argued that Apollomy always means ruined for its original purpose without remainder. Very few Greek words, even in Koine Greek, have that narrow semantical range. I I think that where this gets confused is, I think that Tom uses the English word destroy to mean annihilated. And I think that that's wrong. The word destroy in English carries both connotations. It carries the connotation of completely destroyed and annihilated or ruined. And I believe that that's why, especially in like 82 and some of these English translations, the translators opt for that word because it's more ambiguous and more complete. So if I say that I destroyed somebody, that doesn't mean that they no longer exist, right? Um, if I say I ruined somebody, that's a little bit more specific about what I did, right? And so when Tom says, you know, there's only a couple places where it's, where it's translated ruined, but most of the places it's translated destroyed, right? So, right? And my, that, like, that is nothing for me, Right. Of course, right. That's what the translator should do because Apollomy has, has something of an ambiguous title. Part of it is, I don't think most of the uses of, of um, Apollomai are designed to tell us anything about like those sorts of things. I think the, the point is you're supposed to get... like So t Tom made a lot about the idea of like the finality of something, that the point is the finality, right? The point is the finality. Okay, great. Why don't we interpret it like that now? No, like when we get to Apollomai... Why don't we just say, look, what we're told here is the finality of that and nothing else about how long things last. Why believe that this proves annihilationism? Let me, and I, I think that the church fathers were able to do this. They, they recognized that you could have 
verbs like consume for chaff and that that they could hold in their mind that that there was like this finality of destruction and not believe that that meant something ontological about how souls exist, right? So let, let me read for you. This is a quote from St. Cyprian. So St. Cyprian, I think, was a Greek writer. He's, he, was born in two, he was born in 200. He lived till 258. Listen to what he, how he describes this. He says, An ever-burning Gehenna and the punishment of being devoured by living flames will consume the condemned. Okay, that's pretty straightforward, right? Gehenna will consume the condemned. Semicolon. Nor will there be any way in which the tormented can ever have respite or be at an end. Souls, along with their bodies, will be preserved for suffering in unlimited agonies. The grief at punishment will then be without the fruit of repentance. Weeping will be useless and prayer ineffectual. Too late will they have believed in eternal punishment who do not believe in eternal life. Now, He's writing to an audience who didn't believe in immortality, right? But what he are, what see, you see, in Cyprian, there's no issue in his mind between using the biblical language of consumption, like the chaff will be consumed in fire, right? And the finality of that. And then for him to drop a semicolon and then say that the punishment's everlasting. Like for him, the two, the, there's no contradiction there. And I think that that is, I think it's remarkably straightforward for all the church fathers. They, what they saw was, a, was linguistic diversity, in how Jesus and the apostles described destruction, loss, ruin, right? Apolumai means destroyed, ruined, lost. It doesn't have to mean specific theological eschatologies. It just means you lose everything. Like whatever, whatever could have been, whatever could, you lose it all. It's all gone. Now, the good news here, even though I completely disagree with how on this word, is we actually agree very substantially, right? What we agree on is, is that Eternal life is to be gained and lost, right? Whether you believe it's conditional or that you will have eternal damnation or like we believe something very big is being lost that, that the human purpose, why we're creating God's image, the offer of salvation, right? That our, that, that choice and faith matters profoundly like that. We agree on all of that, right? What we disagree with is whether or not you can take from verbs like consumed in parables in reference to chaff and transfer the logic of that in a story, whole cloth into your analytical philosophy about the everlasting nature of souls. And I just don't think you can. I think the reason you can't is because other parts of scripture make clear that the punishment is everlasting, right? That's it. And so I think that, I think that Tom is widening his interpretation contextually of certain words in certain passages that are more metaphorical and using those other overcome passages that are more analytical. And I think you should do the opposite. You should use the more analytical uses of words to determine your analytical philosophy and use metaphorical uses of words to determine metaphors. And I think when he pushes a logic that far, be like, you got to believe animals exist. I like, I just, I don't agree with that. I don't think you have to believe any of that. And I'm, I'm, I'm open to being pushed on that. Okay. So I would say it the other way around. I think Nick is putting a lot of hinge on one passage, the one in Revelation chapter 14, verse 11, um, to bring something out of the prophetic literature that is a direct quote from Isaiah about Edom, that their smoke, the smoke of their torment is going to rise forever and ever. You can go over in the Middle East. There's no smoke rising over there. Not, not from man's perspective. Now, the, uh, the prophetic literature is God's perspective. And so in God's perspective, that sin wasn't forgiven. Maybe that is going on and on and on. And certainly it was day and night while they were suffering it. But 
man's perspective and God's perspective are, are two different things. Um, so we're talking about one verse that everything's hinging on. And that is Matthew 25. Um, and I, I believe I've given many, many, many scriptures and, um, but perhaps one of the most powerful to me is in Luke 12, when Jesus is referencing final judgment. And he says, those who knew the master's will and did not do it will be beaten with many blows. And those who did not know the master's will and did not do it will be beaten with few blows. And in neither of those is anybody given eternal blows. They are giving limited blows fitting their crime. And, and, and we talked about this last week. The crime of humanity is, is not just what you did wrong. It's what you didn't do right. And, and all of that is also laid against how much you knew, how much light you had. God has not given equal light to all human beings. We are responsible for the light we get. The Bible says this is the judgment. This is John 3, 19. That light has come into the darkness, but men loved darkness rather than light. The point of judgment is not that we're in darkness. <laughs> we were born in darkness. The point of judgment is our response to the light. God, and that's what's happening on this earth right now, is God is calling people to the light. However dark they are, however dark it's been, whatever your your heritage of darkness was that you that you are Jesus is inviting people out of that and to refuse that to stay in darkness to perpetuate darkness is what leads to um punishment conscious torment um for sin okay you brought up Luke 12 and it talks about literally what you just said Nick what I mean what do you think of Luke 12 yeah, I mean, the entire history of Christian interpretation of that passage is that there will be differences in the intensity of suffering. But I, I think for him to argue, for Tom to argue that, so for, for, when you beat somebody with a rod, like in the ancient world, right, a strike is a strike. They're about equal, right? So if you want to punish somebody more than another person, you beat them with more blows than the other one. So for Jesus to argue that, um, I agree with like 80% of what Tom said there, right? Like that what Jesus is saying is that in final judgment, there will be a difference in punishments. Tom seems to be saying that that difference must be duration, right? I don't see why that's the case. It could be duration. It could be intensity. There could be, there could be a number of options by which punishment could be varied. I never, ever said anything like I didn't believe in varied punishments. I think that there are probably differences in intensity rather than duration. And the reason I believe that is because I believe there are many, many, many scriptures that say that the torment is everlasting because I believe that the punishment is everlasting that the way I would naturally assimilate that scripture is, is that the difference is probably intensity rather than duration. Bro, bro, there's one scripture that says it. No, see part of this is like, you believe that the fire does not go out. The worm does not die. All that stuff. You think that that confirms your view because you think the fire just keeps going as a symbol but I don't believe any of the fathers believe that. I don't believe any New Testament authors and very few people in the church. Bro, bro I want to read this. When I was working on my book, Monty Conetter was, was doing a master's degree and his professor of theology, Phil Carey, um, he asked him about this. And here's what Phil Carey wrote. Yeah. The early church did not often think very far beyond the day of final judgment. 
There certainly is a strong sense in the New Testament that divine condemnation in the final judgment is irrevocable. But whether this meant unending torment or ultimate destruction is not absolutely clear, which is why the annihilist interpretation of hell, though a minority opinion in the tradition, has some plausibility. Um, I've got a quote here from Ignatius. I've got one here from Justin Martyr. Do you feel like some plausibility is a ringing endorsement? I, I'm just I saying. Mean, I would. I would grant. I'm that just saying it was. I'm just saying it was some plausibility. I'm just saying it was unclear. Um, I don't think those are the same thing. I don't think some plausibility. Well, I I like Phil Carey. I like his classes on Augustine. I think he's a good scholar. But again, that's an appeal to authority. I mean, I great, but I don't agree with him. And I, I well, actually I agree with him that it has some plausibility. But I don't think that it is the preponderance of evidence. I think the preponderance of evidence in the Bible and in the church in the fathers like the. Like the, like, I mean, if, if I use, I can easily turn the same logic around. Like, for example, you, you can say like one of the things you've argued, like if you, if you use language, like the fire that does not go out and the worm that does not die and the outer darkness, first of all, being cast in outer darkness, right? That metaphor has nothing to do with the person ending. It's, it's that they exist, they're out there, they're conscious and they never get to come in, Right. That, that metaphor doesn't help with annihilationism. The worm, I don't, I don't know if you've seen like maggots and stuff eating stuff in your trash, but the worm that does not die doesn't die because it's constantly consuming an object, right? If the worm does not die because it's constantly consuming something, then the thing being consumed lasts. And we all know that fires go out the minute they don't have fuel. Like if, now you might think that's simplistic logic, but it's no more simplistic than the logic you were using five minutes ago. They, they just, I mean, the last NIV... The 2011 NIV translated Mark 8:41. The worm that eats them does not die, and it's it's very similar to the fire that extinguishes them does not die. The fire never goes out. This this is plain langu- language. Jesus said that, this is what Jesus says. He says, um, "If you abide in me and I abide in you, you're going to bear much fruit." But if you do not abide in me, you are going to be cut off like a branch and you're going to be thrown into the fire. The imagery there is a dried branch burning in a fire. That branch is not going to burn forever, but it is going to burn for a while until it is annihilated. This is just, this is just clear language. The, 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 the the bias of the idea of an eternal soul, which Nick says it was very unclear in the Old Testament. Uh, I didn't I didn't uh, find it unclear in I the Old say, Testament. No, I said that there were by the time of Jesus there were a number of views about the afterlife among the Jews. That's what I said, and that's what I mean to say at least. Okay, okay. But the Pharisees well, believed in the believed in the everlasting. They didn't see you, you, uh, part of that. I think that could confuse listeners is we're using the word eternal and everlasting interchangeably, and they're not interchangeable. So, immortal means never had a beginning, and eternal means outside of time. So only God is immortal, right? The question is whether or not we're everlasting by nature, right? That's the question. Are we everlasting now? The, the Essenes, who Josephus referred to and Tom referred to, believed that the soul was eternal, which I think means, and I think the Greeks believed this, 
relatively speaking, depending on the Plato reason, did. Plato that they, believed that, they that there was no beginning. Right. That right. they pre-existed. Right. right. The Pharisees believed that you were born, but that your immaterial self as a consciousness continued to exist in the netherworld or Hades or Sheol or whatever, right? That there was another world and everybody went to it. So Samuel, who's a perfectly godly guy, gets called up out of the earth and he tells Saul, you're going to be with me at the end of tomorrow because you're going to be dead too and all the dead go to the same place, right? Now, the Pharisees believed that for the righteous, there would be a raising to new bodies. Josephus is a little ambiguous. Some people think he means some kind of reincarnation. It's much more likely they believed in some kind of bodily resurrection for the righteous and only the righteous. But the Pharisees believed that the wicked would not be raised bodily, but their souls would continue to exist and be tortured or punished in the netherworld. That's what they believed. So they were conditional immortalists or whatever you want to call it for a physical resurrection for the righteous, but they believed in the immaterial non-raised permanent condemnation and torture of the wicked in their immaterial selves in the underworld, right? So like when we start narrowing this all down and Tom's saying, look, there's a long history of this. Well, not his view. I mean, his view isn't really possible until we get Jesus and the apostles, nor is my view really. But to say that like, the Essings were like infected by the Greeks and then all this stuff happened. I just don't think that's true. And, and I, as somebody who has read every word Justin Martyr ever said, because I, I used to read the fathers for fun. Um, yes, it's true that a number of the Greek fathers write in reference to the Greeks and incorporating Greek ideas and how they explain their theology. But what, one of the things the average listener doesn't know is that people like Justin Martyr were arguing with Romans who were steeped in Greek philosophy, explaining to them why they should quit torturing and killing Christians and why Christian philosophy was much more like their philosophy than they thought. And they were incredibly ignorant of Christian thought. And so any place where Martyr, Justin Martyr could say, look, we basically believe the same thing as Plato on this. I don't know why you're, you're burning us alive. He did. And like there's, but in many places where, where Justin Martyr and other philosophers, until you all get all the way to Augustine and Rome falls, there were many places where they would look at the Greek philosopher and they'd be like, you guys are totally wrong about this. You're completely wrong. And you see this in Justin Martyr as you read his, both of his apologies and his dialogue with Trifo and his other writings, where he will say to the Greeks, yes, we agree with you on this pretty much. And then he'll tell them they're, they, they're completely wrong and they should repent on something else. So I, and I, I see this, I'm not, I don't actually want to accuse Tom of this because I don't want to say that his reading, but I, but I have experienced a lot of people being like, oh, the fathers, they were infected with all this Greek philosophy. No, they, ha- they were forced to grapple with Greek philosophy. It'd be like people a thousand years from now reading Tom's sermons when he's interacting with secular modernity here in Madison. And like, he's like, look, we believe the same thing on these things. Like, but I believe something different. And here's how Jesus relates to it. And he's doing apologetics preaching. And people be like, you see, Tom, he was totally infected with like Madisonian atheism and all that kind of stuff. He didn't even, like he got that from like the Madison people. He didn't get that from the Bible. And Tom would be like, bullcrap. I, I, I was trying to convey the scriptural truths within the context and understanding of the people who I was doing apologetics with. And so as like, I just do not agree that people like Justin Martyr were affected with, and Martyr clearly believes in eternal conscious torment. And he's one of the earliest church fathers and one of the most prolific and one of the most articulate. So we should let Tom hit this. You probably want to ask. Well, just as far as the Old Testament, um, Francis Chan wrote a book defending the eternal conscious torment called Erasing Hell. And he said that the Old Testament position uh, at the time of Christ was annihilation. He listed that first and some eternal conscious torment. And the thing about the Essenes is right from Josephus. So... 
I, I read it last time. I'm not going to read it again, but go back and listen to that. The actual Josephus quote. Okay. Well, let me read the Josephus quote. I mean, I have it right here. I mean, I read it. I, like, I went to try to verify that, and it doesn't say that. I mean, did you take it directly from the text of Josephus? Yeah, Antiquities of the Jews. Okay, here we go. There's a few dozen. It's a number of people. Josephus wrote... Uh, that the Essenes had embraced Greek fables and built, quote, on the supposition that souls are mortal, the doctrine that, quote, bad men suffer immortal punishment after death. He calls such beliefs, quote, an unavoidable bait for such as have once had a taste for their Greek philosophy. Hmm, that must be. Does he describe the Essenes multiple times in the Antiquities? Because I read the section on the Essenes and it did not say that. Hmm. Okay, well. All right. Um, I think it's important though to say that in the section where he describes the Essenes and then the Pharisees and then the Sadducees like all in order, what he says about the Pharisees is that they believed, they also believe that souls have immortal vigor in them and that under the earth they will be there will be rewards or punishments according as they have lived virtuously or viciously okay, so, in this life. So bro... If we want to talk about, because you, you kind of lump Hades and hell together, and, and I don't. I, Hades Hades is a whole Yeah, tank. but okay, but before we get off this, I just want to make clear that the, the Pharisaical view was the majority at the time. In fact, Josephus explicitly says that when Sadducees had to become magistrates, they always delved into Phariseeism and didn't say their position of, an, of annihilation. That's not your position, I know, but they, their non-immortality position publicly, and they agree with the Pharisees because it said the people wouldn't suffer them otherwise. The Old Testament and the Pharisees, absolutely taught that you live after your body dies. Right. Absolutely. Right. So I'm, I'm way with you on that. Everybody okay, goes to Sheol. Hades is the Greek equivalent of Sheol. It means all receiving. And everybody went to Hades. And we get the most explicit information about Hades from Jesus in Luke 16. Um, but that's another topic. Right. And, and but I, I just Hades absolutely does not consume, does not destroy, and no one perishes there. Okay, so, wait, so you it, think Francis Chan is wrong. That annihilation was one of the main Jewish views at the time of Jesus. No, ultimate annihilation. That the, that the, that the wicked will eventually perish. The wicked will eventually, and I read all those well, songs then, then last you, time. Then do you concede that Chan disagrees with Josephus then? Because Josephus explicitly says that the, the Pharisee view is the majority view and that the Pharisees believed in the um, bodily resurrection of the righteous and the eternal torment of the wicked in the netherworld. They, so they're not raised bodily. They stay, they say ephemerally in conscious existence in the netherworld and they are tormented there everlastingly. That's the Pharisees view. That's the majority view. And so when, I mean, Jesus attacked the, the Sadducees view very specifically, but, but I would say like, for me, I would rather take the, the source of antiquity than Francis Chan. I mean, again, this is, this is another like appeal authority. Like I, like I like a lot of Francis there Chan were, says there were multiple, but, obviously multiple opinions of what happened to okay. people. I'll grant that. All right. Great. Um, I'll move on to the next question. This is a question that I got from somebody. Um, they were asking this to Tom, um, was that 
so it says, if Satan was is tormented day and night forever and ever uh, in Revelation 27 through 10, why not people? And I thought it was an interesting question of like, what's the difference between Satan and people? You know, do you have an answer for that? So I just think that we need to exercise a little humility there. I really honestly don't know about Satan and his angels exactly how they were created, what extenuating circumstances. Um, so I don't comment on them in my book. I, I just, I, yeah. I'm talking to human beings about human beings. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The past- it, it, it's, uh, it's chapter 20. It's right, right at the beginning. 20 like three verses and, seven through 10. Oh, seven through 10. Yeah. Uh, do you have anything you want to say about that, Nick? I mean, I just wonder if the, I mean, I haven't looked at the language, I just kind of wonder if the, if the language is the same, you know? For, if it is, then you would have, I mean, I'm just interested to see if the language is the same. I haven't looked it over in the Greek, so that's what I, what I would do is I would see if the language is parallel, and if it is, and it appears to be that Satan is tormented forever and ever in that context, then I would say, well, that's not, that's not going to be conclusive evidence, but Again, like part of the part of the discussion about Anios is, like Tom said, in Koine Greek, because the syntax isn't as tight, and because it's it's like newspaper Greek. There's it, there's not as broad a vocabulary. Words, a lot of words, pay, play double duty, and the syntax isn't as, um, isn't as um, like careful or or complicated as Attic Greek, philosophical Greek. Um, you do have to look at usage. My problem is is that, as I argued before with Atkinson's argument, there is no occurrence in the New Testament in which Aeonus is unambiguously used the way Tom says it is, or Atkinson says it is. And for me, I mean, I'm just like, you know, where's, where's the evidence, right? I don't see any evidence. And so I'm looking for other things evidentially by which we can come to a conclusion on that because every context in which Aeonus is used, it seems over and over again, over again for the intention to be an everlasting context. And so I think that's really important because I think if you see that that's the major unit of Aeonus in all 69 uses with a couple exceptions, which don't mean finality, they mean something else, just a really long time. Then I think it mitigates against this idea that like, that like, well, Aeonus means final. It means final because it means everlasting, right? And I think that that's really important because what happens is if you think that, then you start looking at uses of epilumai or other things like that. And you start putting them together and saying, okay, is there a more complicated view here? And are these different words playing double duty and are they not meant to be analytical references? Right. Um, so yeah, I think that would be the only reason I would think that that would be important, but I think Tom is right. Like there's some places where like, you know, it says something and, and so you just, you firm it and you may not know all the details. I think it's worthwhile. Well, I do have a question for Nick. Um, uh since we're getting towards the end, but this is something that I had written down. I didn't feel like you really answered it very well in the last one that we did. Um, and this is what's compelling to me about the conditional immortality. Tom's viewpoint is that there is, I've always wondered growing up in the church of like, what is the purpose and the point of the tree of life? Cause I grew up in a church that believed in the traditionalist viewpoint. And I, they, you know, there was never any talk about the tree of life. There was never, I would ask, I, you know, and I, it was a small church that most people really didn't know what they're talking about anyways, but I would, I would ask, what is the tree of life? And nobody could ever give me an answer of what the purpose of it was and why it was there. So I, so what is the purpose of the tree of life? So the, the short answer to that is, I don't think we can know conclusively, not in detail. 
right? I think that um, it depends on how you interpret those early chapters and how literally you take them in terms of like them being an, a like just a story and how like how mythologically you take them. I don't mean that myth like not true, but I think how much you think they exist to set up fundamentals of human existence in a broader sense. So for example, is the story of Cain and Abel just about a brother killing a brother and somebody choosing not to overcome sin? But, or is it the fact that like one of the, one of the immediate sins that happens after pride is resentment and that resentment eats up even within a family and that it's so fundamental to human experience that it erupted on the first two brothers on the face of the earth, right? So it, to what extent is that kind of like typological, psychological interpretation of the early chapters of Genesis supposed to be there and that we're supposed to pick up on it, right? So there's two trees in the garden, right? There's the knowledge of good and evil and there's the tree of life, right? Now, in theory, and I think Tom and I would agree on this generally, is that those two trees represent the two eternal gifts God was willing to give his image-bearing cre- creation. But he mainly was not trying to give it to them through the tree. Now, he didn't forbid them from eating from the, from the tree of life. Now, that leads us to speculate whether or not they'd not gotten around to eating from it or that they'd been eating from it, right? I, I don't know the answer to that question. If they, if they weren't forbidden from eating from it, they may have been already eating from it, right? Um, I, what Tom quoted later when, when God says, let's not let them eat from the tree of life and so live forever, makes it sound like maybe they hadn't gotten around to eating from it and maybe it was just a very short time they were in the garden and they sinned immediately and so then they got them out of there before they ate from it the first time, but we don't actually know that, right? What we know is, is that God wanted to give them the gift of the knowledge of good and evil and the gift of each of everlasting life, right? And both of those are incredible gifts, but he didn't want to give them the gift of the knowledge of good and evil by them eating from the fruit. There was, there's an order by which we take on godliness. And he, he was going to, I mean, the church fathers believed that they were, he, they, he was going to teach them the knowledge of good and evil, but part of it was patience. They had to wait. They had to trust God rather than make their own choice to be gods. That was the first, the first, not, so the, the funny thing is, is like the first lesson of the knowledge of good and evil was to not eat from the, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was the first lesson, and they didn't succeed, right? So um, what I think is, is that because human beings, um, I think that everlasting life has to exist in God's mind in the presence of a right-ordered knowledge of good and evil, that is righteousness. And that without righteousness, everlasting life is a damnation. It's disgusting, and it's a horror, And so you can't have both. You can't have a disordered knowledge of good and evil and an everlasting life. God will not suffer that, right? Or he may eternally torment it, but he won't bless it. He won't give it a heaven, right? Or he won't even give it his earth. And so when the human beings chose the knowledge of good and evil illicitly and took on a knowledge, but it was, they got the knowledge of good and evil, but in a completely disordered way, which led to their which led to what we call depravity, the internal brokenness from the confusion over sin and our suppression of the truth. When that happened, God separated them from the other, that they would have access to live forever. I think that the tree of life, that if they ate from it, they would be able to continue to live. I don't know if they would have to keep eating from it to continue to live, or if they ate from it once, they would physically live forever. I don't know the answer to that. And the text doesn't say. Very short. I don't think it was God's plan for people to live forever apart from him. That's all I've got. Yeah. Okay. Well, we are, we're like over an hour into this. I know there's a lot of different questions, um, but 
do you guys have like any you know closing or final statements? Because I so I guess what was what's been frustrating to me when well because I didn't know that you know annihilationism or conditional immortality existed until like two months ago or whenever you first told me about it, Tom. And that was very frustrating because I grew up in the church and it's, you know, I, I, it, it felt like I was in the public school system again, where they were going to teach me one thing and they weren't going to teach me all the different ways of, of learning about something or about a certain topic. You know, they're going to, here's the one way of looking at it. We're not going to tell you about the other, you know, there's another viewpoint over here. We're not going to tell you about that. And that, that was frustrating to me. So, um, I think what can be helpful for people in this podcast is listening to you guys have two completely different views, which is, which is usually what happens. But, um, when I've had some conversations in the last couple of weeks with people about this and I've said, I've, I've been like, yeah, I actually am leaning more towards on, uh, Tom's side and the annihilationist side. People, people have been like, well, that's like, you know, heretical and you're, you're heretic or like, you know, they, their people draw very hard lines on this and they freak out. And I know Nick talked about the, uh, essentials and non-essentials. And I agree. I agree with that as well, but it does feel like there's some sort of like hostile environment around this topic that even when I first told my dad that I, we were talking about this, he was like, you can't, you can't listen to Tom. You can't listen. <laughs> That's crazy. So there is like a hostile environment around this. And it, and so I just, I don't know. I, I feel like it would be good to talk about that a little bit before we go. So as people like listen to this and learn and then go out, maybe to have conversations with other people about. This. Yeah. I, I think that Orthodox both the 88, 89 and the 95 evangelical council said is that universalism is not true. There's not going to be a second chance. Hell is not a place of redemption. It's not a place of purging that it is eternal. And they said sincere Bible believing people disagree on the nature of hell's punishment. And I commend you, bro. Um, it's the reason why I wrote the book. I, I say right at the beginning of the book, I don't care if you agree with me, but this topic at least needs to be raised so that what you believe includes all of the scriptures and not just this is what we believe. Mm-hmm. And because somebody, you heard somebody say it, or that's what your pastor believes, that what does the Bible actually say? And if you come to a conclusion different than me, at least it's informed by what the Bible actually says. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Hell is real. Jesus talked about hell a lot. And I don't see much preaching on hell anymore. And and so I I, I think it it's very important that we think about it, that we have the fear of the Lord. It's kind of like the book of Revelation. Okay. What does the book of revelation mean? We're not sure, but I think it's really important. People read it (laughs) because you get the fear of the Lord. You know, there is a God I will be accountable to. He is going to win in the end and I need to be on the right team and I need to overcome (laughs) because I want to be on God's team and that it strengthens our heart. So just to talk about this, especially in a Christian environment, I think is very important and whether whichever side people settle on and many at our church, they don't, they just don't have a strong opinion on, on which way it is. They, mm-hmm. 
and and I think that's fair. It's kind of like it's kind of like the end times. You know, things will pan out in the end. But I'm going to be ready. I'm going to live ready. I believe Jesus is coming. That's the essential. Mm-hmm. Jesus is coming again. That's essential. Is he coming before the tribulation or during it or after or after the millennium or uh, that's a, that's a non-essential people that love God and love the Bible sincerely disagree about that. So. Okay. Nick, you want to say something about that? Yeah. So I, I think that it's I'm trying to think exactly what I want to say about this. So I, like I, I both agree and just and disagree with Tom. So there's a ton we just agree about that, right? Right. So I think it's I think Tom's affirmation that hell is real. Like there are a lot of pastors that agree with me theologically that would say um, hell is eternal conscious torment, and they don't preach hell half as well as Tom. Okay. So I just straight away I think that's important to say. Like it, it there is Luther once said the test of a soldier is not everything he does, but the sticking point of bravery in the battle itself, right? What proves a soldier is when swords come to blows in the battlefield to do fight, right? And so I don't care if in a theological disputation, some guys on my team is like, no, I agree with Nick. I'm in eternal conscience. But like, they won't get in their pulpit and tell people about the, the consequence of rejecting Jesus and the, the reality of hell, right? And so in that sense, I would consider Tom and his view closer than that because as a shepherd and as a warrior i would say well look maybe tom doesn't agree with me but he fights right so there's a there's a sense in which tom and i are closer than i am with people who hold my view i think that's important right one of my concerns is that and and tom does this some i think he does it more advisedly than most so when i say this i'm not directly picking on Tom, but I, I know believers and I've seen them around high point, for example, who will say the whole like Marcus Antonius, you know, you know, in, in all things, you know, in, in essentials, unity and non-essentials, liberty and all things love as though like whatever you think is a non-essential, we can all have liberty about and that there isn't a cost for being wrong, right? Like every time we get something wrong, it's a fly in the ointment. We don't know where that's leading us right? Everybody who is unorthodox today took a false step somewhere. And I don't want to pretend that any false doctrine is inconsequential. I don't want to pretend that like, so if I'm right, okay, let's, let's stipulate for a second. If I'm right, I think that Tom would therefore be wrong. And I think that that being wrong would be consequential. I think that it's bad. I think it, and I, I don't know how bad it can lead to things. I don't know if it could lead somebody to lose their salvation. I don't, or not come to faith, or if it could lead to some other way of interpreting the Bible because you interpret words this way, that for this doctrine, maybe you'll interpret them this way for that doctrine. And it may be, at least, I don't know. I don't sit in judgment on that. That's why I think that, you know, when James says, look, we'd be very careful when you're a teacher because we're going to be judged more harshly than anybody else, right? Now, I know Tom personally, and I know that he's very careful and he's very well prepared. And he, I don't know any view that he holds that I think he holds in anything less with 100% sincerity. But as a practical pastoral point, the things that we call non-essentials, first of all, are they really non-essentials? And I, th- I think Tom and I might agree on this with, in terms of sexuality in the Bible, that like a lot of people treat sexuality like it's virtually inconsequential. Yet in the Bible, it is like incredibly central. It's like the second to your humanity. It's incredibly important. And how you, how you relate sexually to other people is fundamentally central to your character and to your, I think to your salvation, 
right? That doesn't mean I don't believe you can you can sin sexually and not and be saved. I think you can. But the idea that it's like, well, you know, it's a secondary thing, whatever, let's fornicate. Like drives me nuts when I hear people say that because the the Bible doesn't have a secondary category. We're guessing that it doesn't matter, right? So when Tom says, you know, like you know, like you, we should have liberty when people are trying to sort things out, read scripture and understand it and trying to sort things out. Right. And people sincerely disagree. That's true. And practically you, you, you should be forcing people to believe stuff. People have to obey their conscience because whatever isn't from faith is sin. And so there's a certain practical sense in which you have to let people sort things out. But from a pastoral perspective or like for your elder board or for the doctrine that leads your church, those who are in the position of elders are supposed to give definite direction of specific theological truths. And they're supposed to be able to affirm true doctrine and refute false doctrine. Right. And I think that, and I don't think all quote false doctrines are the same, right? Like Tom and I disagree maybe on, on, we disagree on this. We disagree on gender roles and we disagree on a couple idioms relative to charismaticism. Right. Those are three totally and different only things. gender roles in the church and only not in the, the church. Right. Right. Now, I would classify those as different. I would say this is the most important of our disagreements. I would say gender roles in the church is probably our second most. And then our, the differences we have about charismatic stuff, if there even are any, would be third. And I don't think they're all three the same. I think this is the most consequential one. That's what you, what you, you probably can tell that we're fairly, both fairly adamant about it, that it really matters. And I don't know how it really matters. I can't tell you if you believe Tom's view, if that will negatively affect you or how. I don't, I, I'm not that far seeing. And Tom may feel the same way about my view that it like limits our ministry. It explains something that like doesn't make sense. The world, like he, I think he believes that my view, if it's wrong, is probably consequential, right? So I think it's important that when we say in quote, non-essentials liberty, we don't from that believe that being wrong about something isn't consequential or that things are secondary just because we want to think they are. They're not. And so I just, I want Christians to recognize that very carefully. I, Lastly, I'll say about this, man, this is a really difficult one to sort out if you don't know the original languages, because there's all kinds of people who spill ink saying both sides of this and they say they're what they say very confidently and they say the Greek means this if you really understand it. And like I took a lot of Greek because I never, ever wanted to be in the position where somebody could say something about the Greek language and I couldn't a hundred percent verify it for myself, but I spent I've spent 15, I mean, I've spent at least 15 years of my life learning Greek philology and advanced Greek grammar and all that kind of stuff so that I could do that. Almost nobody in the church gets to do that. So this is a really difficult thing to argue. And I think a lot of people at the end of the day are going to be like, well, I just found Tom more persuasive or I just found Nick more persuasive. And frankly, that's going to be mostly the idiosyncrasy of how we pass the mic back and forth today and how much <laughs> long we spent on stuff. So I'm like, can I say a couple of things? Yeah. First, why I love Nick so much. He fears God and he doesn't cave to culture. And I, I love that. It says in Nehemiah that about one man that he feared God more, more than most men. And that is Nick. I love that about him. And I would say that about Tom. Too. Secondly, I, I, it's hard for me to even believe we're having a, allowed to have this conversation that I was allowed to give my position because I held Nick's view for 25 years. I, I know how strong the view is. <laughs> I, I get that. As far as, is this really something that we can agree to disagree on? I want to go, and, and, and if, if I can, just read this quote again. Because these are, this is minds that 
are more studied, certainly more studied than me, but even more studied than Nick that met at this evangelical council. These, this is their comments on this topic. They said this, this is 1995. We recognize that the interpretation of hell in terms of conditional immortality or eventual annihilation is a significant minority evangelical view. Furthermore, we believe that the traditionalist conditionalist debate on hell should be regarded as a secondary rather than a primary issue for evangelical theology. Although hell is a profoundly serious matter, we view the holding of either one of these two views of it over against the other to be neither essential in respect to Christian doctrine nor finally definitive of what it means to be an evangelical Christian. So that's all I'm saying. We actually agree on way more than what we disagree on, even on this topic. And we are clear on it. On on these are there. There are nuances that we disagree with, but and I I know how how strong he holds his position because I held it and I called everybody a heretic that didn't hold it. So I I love you, bro. Yeah. So here's here maybe this will be the last thing I'll say is I think that the natural emotional drift within maternity modernity is towards Tom's position. I think that if you, I th- the uh, holding to the idea of eternal conscious torment, if you aren't flippant about eternal and what that means, the idea that people could deserve, because nobody believes that God punishes people beyond deserving, right? And so the idea that you could accrue eternal damnation, like eternal torment that is everlasting, um, seems really difficult for people to cope with. And so... Um, I think the natural emotional movement is going to be towards annihilationism, right? Now, I'm not saying that that, that doesn't make it wrong. It may, it may be people would move toward it because it makes sense, and maybe it's because it's right. Okay, so I'm not saying that that mitigates against it. But when I think through something, one of the first things I think is, where are my emotions taking me? What do I want to believe? And the first thing I do is set myself in the opposite direction a little bit to off, off weigh that. Um, what I would, what I would encourage people to read about this, it's, it's 50 pages or less. There's a work by Jonathan Edwards called the justification of God and the damnation of sinners, where he makes a philosophical and theological argument about how God is entirely justified for people to be damned forever. And it's a tour de force and it will make you smarter to read older English anyway. And, um, you'll get a really good sense. And if you can read that, and it's, it like has no effect on you, then you're probably going to be an annihilationist. Because ultimately, there has to be a philosophical argument for the justice of God in the damnation of sinners everlastingly. Um, and I think Edwards does a very, very good job of arguing it. It's a fairly short work. Um, I think that if you grapple with that question and you can receive the idea that the punishment might be everlasting, that will affect your view of God and his majesty in certain ways. That, that I think could be helpful. But I, I, I'm not saying by that that if you don't believe in that, you can't believe God has majesty. I, I just think that, um, I think that if, if in the back of your mind you just can't believe that punishment could be just and everlasting, then you will by default be pushed emotionally to believe in annihilationism. And, and I think that you need to realize that's how you feel. Most people are going to feel that way and that doesn't make it true. And so I, one of the things I feel like you have to do is you have to say, yeah, like, like for example, same thing with egalitarianism. I was, I was raised in a feminist world. Of course I want to be egalitarian, right? Like, like 
like fundamental to my internal workings is you can't be sexist. You can't be sexist. You can't be sexist, right? I want to be an egalitarian. All my emotions push me in that direction. And I need to, I always need to recognize that when I read the Bible and how it talks about gender roles, right? I think that's true for everything. So I, I just, I think that for people listening, like there's a 22 year listening to this. They're going to listen to Tom. They'll be like, that makes perfect sense. I've been waiting for that view my whole life. I mean, that, like, of course that's right. And I'm like, hold on there, tiger. Don't underestimate how much you want to believe that that's right. It's clear. It's neat. It folds up all that. And, um, I think, I don't know if Tom would affirm that. I think that's true. Even if Tom's view is correct, it could be you're drawn to it emotionally because it's right. But I think there's also lots of other reasons that you could be emotionally drawn to it. And if that becomes decisive, that's very dangerous because it means you've started to believe doctrines because you want to. Then you're basing it not on scripture. Right. You're and basing and that, it on your own. That will lead you to hellfire as long as it exists. Amen. <laughs> yeah. Great. That's great. Um, I don't have any more questions. I do think that we should pray. Tom, or Nick should pray us out. So here you go. Father, as your church prays in all generations, we pray that you would lead us to a knowledge of you that's more perfect, more complete, more absolute, um, more absolutely true. We pray that we would submit to you in every way, that we would submit to your word with trembling, that when you say that, you say in Isaiah, who, who is the person to whom I will look? And you say the person who is humble in heart and who trembles at my word. I pray, God, that you'd make us people who, when we grapple with a doctrine like this and a truth like this, that we're willing to believe you. Yes, God. And that from that, you would lead us to the truth. And I yes, pray that... God. It would, even if it leads to a diversity in views, it would fortify us within the realm of believing everything that you say. Yes, God. And um, I pray that it would lead to unity in, in your church and that it would lead to a strengthening of a belief in your majesty, your greatness, where you are big and we are small in comparison to you and we are only made big in you. And um, I pray that you would, you would bless your church and that you would cause many people because of its love and its truthfulness escape hell, whatever its duration. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, Tom, thanks again for coming. Privilege. Privilege to be here. Always fun. So, um, yeah, make sure to like and and rate it and all that fun stuff. We will be back soon with more questions. See you guys.